As you can see from the reading of Psalm or of Isaiah chapter 12, it is a psalm. It is a song of praise, and it's a fitting chapter to the conclusion of what has been called the book of Emmanuel. Chapter 7 through 12 is a little subsection in the 66 books of Isaiah, the book that we've been studying here at Fellowship. And it's a, a subsection because it focuses on the coming king, Emmanuel. In fact, there are four names that have been prominent in these chapters, chapters 7 through 12. If um, you read Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, Isaiah said, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs. They're signs and wonders in Israel. In other words, his son, Mayor Shalahashbaz, was a sign. That's quite a name. And it's a name that means quick to spoil, swift to the plunder. And it was a sign of judgment. It was talking about the coming Assyrians who were swift to the plunder. They were, they were quick to the spoil. The rapid movement of Assyria was coming down in judgment against Israel, against Judah. But Isaiah's other son was Shir Jashuv, which means a remnant will return. There's a, it's a sign of hope. Not all is going to be lost. A remnant is going to return. So there's a sign of judgment. There's a sign of, of hope. And hope becomes a reality because of the third name, Isaiah. His name means the Lord is salvation. And the means of that salvation is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Chapter 7 through 12 is the book of Emmanuel, who will come and ultimately set up his glorious kingdom on earth. So in spite of the fact that judgment is the prominent theme in this kind of first major half of the book of Isaiah, God's mercy and his grace are ever-present. He is the God of salvation because Emmanuel is coming, God is with us. And that brings us so to the chapter 12. This is why it is a song of praise. Now, um, it's a very simple uh, song, uh, six verses in this chapter. It can be divided in half. In fact, as you look in your Bibles, the first verse begins with the words, then you will say on that day. And then if you jump down to verse 4, that phrase is repeated again, then you will say on that day. And so there's the two sections of the song, verses 1 through 3, verses 4 through 6. Except what's, what we don't catch in our English translations Verse 1, when it says, and you will say on that day, um, the you, the, the pronoun there, is in a singular form. Talking about an individual. In verse 4, even though it says the same thing, in that day you will say, the you there is a plural pronoun. So verses 1, 2, 3, it's a call to an individual to rejoice. In verses 4 through 6, it's a call to the community to the congregation to, re to rejoice. So verse 1, in that day you will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. See how personalized this is? The worshiper is coming and saying, you've done something for me. Your anger has been turned from me. You comfort me. You're my salvation. Behold, God is my salvation, verse 2, so I will trust and not be afraid. 
God's anger is turned. God's comfort is extended. This is a personal commitment to praise God because of what he has done. The focus is on me and God as a worshiper. Have you ever personalized the scripture for yourself? This is a great opportunity. This is one of those great passages where you can insert your name. God has turned his anger away from Mark Carey. I don't deserve it. There's not a person in this room who has deserved it. In fact, every one of us in this room deserve to be in hell right now because we're sinners. But he has turned his anger away from Mark, and he has comforted Mark. Verse 2, God is Mark's salvation. Put your name, personalize it. And he says, last part of verse 2, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And in the, in the Hebrew text, the first word there, Lord, is, is a shortened form of the word Yahweh. And so literally it reads, for Yah, Yahweh is my strength and my song. It's, an in, a, 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 it's worded in a way of endearment. Yah, Yahweh. Precious God, precious Lord, my Lord, my God, Yah, Yahweh. He's my strength. He's my song. He's turned his anger from me. He is my hope. It's just this closeness and endearment. It's this intimacy that a worshiper as an individual is called upon to praise God. It's similar to in Psalm 118. The psalmist said, from my distress, I called upon the Lord, and the Lord answered me. He set me in a large place, for the Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princesses. For the Lord is my strength and song. He's become my salvation. There's that same phrase again. In fact, it's very possible that Isaiah picked this up from Psalm 118. In fact, go even further back. In Exodus chapter 15, when the Israelites came across the dry land through the Red Sea, they sang a song of triumph, of victory. And Exodus chapter 15, verse 2, repeats this very same phrase, my, the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. It's like what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? And he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? And he goes on and says, nothing. Nothing separates us. He's turned his anger from me. He's comforted me. He loves me. He's my salvation. He's my strength, my song. This personal, intimate relationship with the holy God. And because as Isaiah is rejoicing over this truth, as he puts his confidence and his trust in God, he says, what shall I fear? What shall I fear? Or as Paul just said, what, what can men do to me? Well, in reality, man could do a lot to us. In reality, you head outside, there's a lot that we should fear. There's a lot of bad things out in this world. There's a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, a lot of bad stuff, a lot of sin that can be thrown at us, and this life is not fun. 
And yet, in confidence and trust, when we know that God loves us, fear is dispelled. Remember what David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he's my God. Thou art with me. And folks, we have to continually learn, I think, to take the truth of God's word, what we've just celebrated in the communion service, and personalize it. That's what we do in the communion service. We partake. You're not putting a piece of bread in someone else's mouth. You're doing it yourself because it's you and God. You and God. The logical conclusion, verse 3, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. In other words, there is no end to God's mercy and grace. That, that, that wellspring never ends. And you go to it time and time and time again. Guess what? Fresh, sweet water is always there. And you draw upon it every day as John wrote in chapter 1 of his gospel, verse 16, for out of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. You dig in there, get a bucket full of fresh water of grace, and you get another fresh water of grace, bucket of grace, and more and more and more because there is an ever-ready supply. I will joyously, he says, draw water from the springs of salvation. The second section of chapter 12, now it's the corporate call. And in that day, you all will say, plural, and what is it? In that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord and call on his name and make known his deeds among the people. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. We don't have much time this morning to unpack that little phrase. I would encourage you to take a concordance and track it, track it throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, to call upon the name of the Lord. It's, a, it's more than just general praying to pray, to call upon his name. It specifically, I think, has the idea of, God, you have promises that you said you, you would give to us. Lord, you are a God of promises, and I'm going to call upon you to fulfill your promises to me. That's the idea of calling upon the name. So corporately, the people gather, and they give thanks to God, and then they corporately say, now God, you said you'll never leave us nor forsake us. We're counting on you, God. God, and corporately we say this, God, you say that you'll always give us a, um, the answer to our prayers that are just right, that you'll never give us a stone when we ask for bread. Father, we're calling upon you. We're calling upon you. It's an appeal to God to make good on his promises. That's what it means. Call upon the name of the Lord. And then it says in the last part of verse 4, and make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. This is a call for the community of believers to encourage one another, to help each other remember in times of difficulty, in times when we can't see hardly a foot in front of us in terms of life's difficulties. And in the community of saints, we call each other to remember. And then verse 5 we export this good news, not just keeping it to ourselves in the community of the saints, but a verse 5 says, Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things, and let it be known throughout all the earth. This last section of this psalm is Godward focus, 
give thanks to God. It's community focus, tell to one another, and it's worldwide focus. Let it be known to the world how great God is. And then there's that final verse, verse 6, which pulls out the plugs in terms of uh, the stops of, of, of uh, emotional passion. He says, cry aloud and shout for joy. Literally, cry aloud is a, is a very powerful emotional phrase. that You could actually translate it, scream at the top of your lungs. Cry aloud, shout for joy, O inhabitants of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. And guess what, folks? We've come full circle. The book of Emmanuel. He is in our midst. Emmanuel, God with us. And so we sing and we shout and we worship him because he is a God who is in our midst. Now, I want to take this one step further. And I want to share with you 10 important components to real, true worship, all right? So they were listed in our bulletin, and let me mention them to you. Ten components of true worship. First of all, true worship is a response to a personal encounter with God. You can't praise what you haven't experienced. You can't give thanks if you're ignorant about what it is we should be thankful for. And so knowledge of God is crucial. You show me a people of God that's growing in the understanding of God, who's deepening our perspective, who daily and weekly is coming together and understanding, my goodness, what a great God. God did those mighty deeds. God did this in our community of believers. God did this this for me. You can't help but be a true worshiper of God. Second of all, True worship is a response to being a recipient specifically of God's grace. It's knowing the great deeds and the mighty things about God. That becomes a, helps us become a true worshiper. But when you personally have experienced God's mercy and grace, and folks, they're supposed to be new every morning because great is his faithfulness. And every morning, every day, a fresh supply of grace, a fresh Um, uh, pouring out of his mercy. See, gospel-centered worship is worship that is born out of the reality that God has graced me. It's gospel-centered worship. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it's this overflowing of, of this conviction. If I was the only person on the face of the earth No one else had ever survived. I'm the only one. Jesus would have gone to the cross for me to die for my sins. We personalize it because we're a recipient of grace. And when we realize, that's again, the value of the Lord's table. That's what we remember. We're a recipient of God's grace. That is to enhance our worship. Give thanks to the Lord. There's a third characteristic or component of true worship. It declares one's trust and confidence in God. Heart worship is a declaration of one's submission, of one's uh, trust and, and dependence and confidence in God. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust. I will not be afraid. It's an acknowledgement that there is no one greater to turn to but Him. And we speak that to Him. We declare that to Him. You alone. I've got nowhere else to turn. 
I have nowhere else to go. People living in fear, people living in worry, have a hard time worshiping because they don't have confidence in God. Now, it doesn't mean that circumstances all of a sudden go away, bad things go away. It means while we're in the midst of those bad things. It means while, while tears of grief are trickling down our cheeks because of the pain of life, there is deep within our soul a confidence. There is a trust. There is a sense, God is my God. He has turned his anger away from me. I find comfort in you, O oh God. I can crawl up in your lap. I call you Abba, Father. True worship declares one's trust and confidence in God. Here's a fourth component. True worship is a continual response of praise. It's not limited to a certain time or a certain place. David in Psalm 34 verse 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. When we taste and we experience his goodness and his grace, we can't help but keep coming back for more. And so, again, verse 3, joyously draw water from the wellsprings of his salvation. You're going through the day. All of a sudden, something happens, a, a, a criticism from someone or, or a, a thought. A, a, the, the great accuser of the brethren, Satan, brings up some, some sin of your past. Or maybe you have literally failed. You have sinned against God. You draw from the wellspring of salvation because it's always there no matter where you are in your journey of the day. You can continually draw no matter when, how, three in the morning you wake up. That wellspring is full of sweet water of his grace, of his salvation, and you draw from it joyously. Perpetual appropriation leads to perpetual praise. And see, a true worshiper of God is always going to that wellspring of his grace and goodness. There's an ever-abundant supply. We're always running to God. And a person who's always running to God is going to be a worshiper of him. You can't help but be. Here's a fifth component. True worship involves a corporate appeal to God to fulfill his promises to his people. Again, that's that verse 4. Give thanks to him and call upon his name. Corporately, together. It has to do with God's people crying out to God to remember his promises and to appeal to God, now do what you've promised. Lord, this is what you have said. Lord, we appeal to, we cry out to, we call upon your name. The goodness of your character, now fulfill it. And it's a privilege to do that as God's people. Here's a sixth component. True worship expresses God's greatness to others and enjoins them to worship too. Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and last part of verse 4 says, and make known his deeds among the peoples. True worship isn't content to praise God in private. There's that private component, that personal component, that's verses 1, 2, and 3. But true worship isn't content to just sit there and let it be in the closet of our life. We want to tell somebody. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but all the more as it's called today. Let's, let's encourage one another. 
And we do that by proclaiming the goodness of God, by recounting his deeds, by telling the stories, make, make his deeds known among the people. It's telling the stories of God. C.S. Lewis in his book on Reflections of the Psalms, and I've mentioned this uh, in the past, but this is a great quote from that book. C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. It's not out of, uh, of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is or, or to come suddenly at the turn of a road upon some mountain valley of unexpected, unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. We delight to praise what we enjoy because praise not only merely expresses, it completes the enjoyment. It's its appointed consummation. Where we used to live for 18 years uh, over by Bass Hoover Elementary School in our first home when we moved here, it was kind of down low and trees around. We never saw a Virginia sunset. Never. We knew it happened because it just got dark. But then 10 years ago, we moved out a little ways, and now we, we have this beautiful view of the western. And it, I don't know how many, if I had a dollar every time Lisa or I would say to, we would say to one another, hey, look, come over here, quick, have you seen the sunset? Wow. And we stand and look at it time and time. Wow. Have you been to Grand Canyon? Oh, look at that. Wow. That's expressing the, the grandeur of God, and we have to tell each other about it. Tell of his glorious deeds. Make known his deeds to one another. We need that. We, true worship just doesn't keep silent. It includes others. If you're involved in a small group, a community group, or a, a, a women's Bible study group, or a men's group, do we carve out time? Do we just get into the Bible lesson and that? Or do we actually carve out some time where we tell the stories of how the week went? Do you tell of the deeds of God that have happened in your, in your life? I mean, that's where encouragement comes in. Tell it. Tell it to the community. True worship also evangelizes. You know, when we're telling others about God's wonderful salvation and grace, we're worshiping because that's what worship is. It's, it's expressing God's wonder, specifically in the fact that he sent his son to die, to rise again, to pay the penalty of my sin. That's worship. As Phil led us in communion this morning, here, up here in, in Fellowship One, I'm not sure who's leading it down there for you in Fellowship Three. I guess you go to the different stations. But as Phil led it this morning, it was, he focused on this idea of we do this to proclaim and declare it. We, we do it to one another and to others. You can't help but worship when you evangelize. In fact, you can't evangelize if you're not a worshiper. Um, you've got to tell others about God. I mean, when you come and realize the grace of God, what, who God is and what he's done, and you keep that to ourselves, I mean, how can we? And so the Isaiah here is saying, so make it known, verse 5, make it known to the earth. Don't just keep it to yourself. Here's an eighth one. True worship is expressed through singing, through singing. 
Uh, I mentioned earlier, Isaiah, I think, used Exodus 15, the song of Moses, and Psalm 118. He, he used source material, like a, like a hymn book. And he opened up the scriptures and he sang. There's nothing like singing that kind of can stir the emotions. That's how God wired us. He wired us that way. John Piper once wrote, singing is the Christian's way of saying God is so great that thinking will not suffice. He's so great there must be deep feeling. Talking will not suffice. There must be singing. Not just our minds engaged, our entire being, and that's what singing does. It says, for he has done excellent things. And so we, we sing that out, which leads to a ninth component. It's the engagement of our emotions along with our minds. True worshiping, when we enter true biblical worship, it engages our emotions. Cry aloud. Scream it at the top of your lungs. That's what it says literally. Shout for joy. Joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Now, I realize some of this is personality. I realize that some of you have a personality, maybe not even to the level of a stalk of celery. <laughs> but some of you are so bubbling effervescent that it makes us stalks of celery sick to be around you sometimes. Some of it is just pure personality. But you know, I've known people who are so introverted, so quiet, and yet if you pulled open the spiritual, open their spiritual breast, and you would see passion for God beating like you wouldn't believe. Maybe not outwardly, but in their heart, they are screaming for joy at who God is doesn't matter how you're wired and how God made you. Every one of us can engage our emotions and passionately, passionately serve God in a cry for joy because great he is in our midst. Great is the Lord in our midst. You know, uh, some of you are, are hockey fans in the Capitals uh, last night, you know, the exciting times. I'm sure there was a lot of screaming and hooting and hollering if you were an ice hockey fan. And then we come to church. No, I, let's keep it down here. I realize that. <laughs> I don't want to get interrupted in my sermons. Although an occasional amen is kind of, at least I know there's a pulse out there. <laughs> but emotions, based on what? On a knowledge of who God is. He's turned his anger from us. He's comforted us. He's our joy. He's our song. We cry aloud. And the 10th component then, true worship celebrates God's presence in our midst. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. It's recognizing that God inhabits the praises of his people. That when we gather, he is our audience. And it anticipates his coming because one day the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. He's in our midst. His presence here. Soren Kierkegaard, the, the Danish thinker and scholar of the 19th century, uh, compared um, worship to a theater play. It's a classic uh, analogy where he complained that all too often um, we imagine that it's the, the, the pastor up on the stage is the actor. 
and uh, the congregation is the audience sitting out there. Hmm. <laughs> I guess we kind of look like that, don't we? He said, in reality, the congregation is on the stage. The pastor and the choir, the worship team, they're coaching us in our worship. And God is the audience watching. In fact, he's just not the audience. He's the reason for our worship. He's the inspiration of our worship. He's the energizer of our worship through his spirit. And so the question this morning from Isaiah chapter 12 is, are you a true worshiper of God? Have you been touched and changed by the grace of God? Then reflect on it and worship him. We should be true worshipers if we've been touched by the grace of God. Have you personally experienced God's strength? Have you, have you personally experienced the comfort of God in the dark times of life? Has there been a time in your life this week where just the presence of God, where, where God showed up and reminded you, I'm in charge and I'm here? Then worship him. That should elicit from us praise. Has God become our salvation? Do we draw daily from the wellsprings of his salvation? Has God been faithful even in our faithlessness? Then we are worshipers of God. And we're going to do a little bit of that right now. Just a little bit more worshiping corporately where we're going to declare the praises of God and how great he is. So would you stand with me and let's pray. Father... Thank you for the opportunities we have to glorify your name. Now lead us and continue, Father, to stir within us this desire to know you, to express to you our thanksgiving, to call upon your name, Father, to declare your goodness and grace with joy. Right now, Father, we want to draw from the wellspring of salvation and sing to you. For you are our audience this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.